How does it feel when you know something that nobody else knows? Consider a few different scenarios in which that might occur. You're midway through a conversation and the conversation between you and a couple of others turns to an area of special interest of yours. You're an expert in your own mind, at least, at this specific area. And how do you feel? How do you respond? Most likely, you'll do everything in your power to share all the information that you possess on that topic, whether the others want to know it or not. But you know what they don't know, and yet sort of want to show off a little bit your expertise and your insider knowledge. How about this? Scenario number two. Perhaps you've been told a secret, something that few others are aware of. Most others aren't supposed to be aware of. How does that make you feel? Perhaps it makes you feel important, but if you're anything like me, in my position, people tell me things, I get a little bit nervous. I get a little bit worried that somehow, in some situation, I might actually let slip by mistake. How about scenario number three? Perhaps you know something, know something really important, and you know that others should know it, and it devastates you that they don't know. You just wish that everybody knew the truth as you knew it. Not so that you can show off and brag, not so that the, the weight and the burden and the responsibility of holding that special knowledge is relieved, but because it's so important, because it's so wonderful, you just don't want others to miss out. We're still in the Book of Acts, for this week at least, and we left off last week with Paul being taken to Athens and left on his own. Acts chapter 17 verse 15 says this, those who accompanied Paul escorted him as far as Athens and after receiving an order from him to go and get Silas and Timothy, they left. So where is Paul as we begin this morning? In all of his journeying around countries and continents, where has he arrived? Well, he's in Athens. Still, at that time, a city filled with culture and art and philosophy. Great thinkers and great talkers. He's in Athens, and I think you could make a fair case to say it's the sort of place you'd imagine Paul really enjoying going. When you're thinking, planning holidays, you might think, what, what, the sort of place I really would want to go would be sun, sea and sand, or a city with history that you can visit certain locations, or beautiful wide open spaces that you can go out exploring in your cagoul and heavy boots. I think you could make a pretty good case that Athens is the sort of place Paul should have loved going on holiday. Things to see, places to visit, people to discuss with, to discuss religion and philosophy and, and history. And perhaps you'd make a pretty good case that he was due a good holiday. After weeks and months of stress and suffering so far on his missionary journeys, there'd been highs, but there'd been plenty of lows. He's there in Athens on his own because he's been chased out not just of Thessalonica, but of Berea afterwards too. And he's been separated by his travelling companions, his colleagues, his co-workers. Why not, Paul, down tools for a few weeks, 
Wait until they catch up with you and just take it all in. The sights, the sounds, the smells. But as we read the passage today, Acts chapter 17, 16 and onwards, we'll see that this is far from being a place that he loves. This is not somewhere where he can unwind and replenish his batteries because he arrives and he is devastated by what he finds. Acts 17 verse 16 says this, While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was greatly upset. In other translations, he was deeply distressed because he saw that the city was full of idols. Paul arrives in Athens with all of its splendor, with all of its glory, with all of its reputation, and he's sick to the stomach. He's devastated by what he encounters. Quite literally, in the Greek, a city which is weighed down, which is overloaded with idols, with false gods, with worshipping in ways and means that just are totally alien. And one idol, or one altar, I should say, in particular, catches his eye and breaks his heart, makes his stomach churn. If we read down in verse 23, it says this, Observing, in Paul's own words, the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Here, by their own admission, was the news that so upset our apostle. That there is a God out there, and these Athenians haven't got a clue who he is. That there is a God out there, and they haven't got a clue what he's done. That there is a God out there, and they've got no idea what he's like. To an unknown God. And sadly, I don't know whether this particularly describes the Athenians, but it certainly describes plenty in our day. All too often, in that situation of not knowing the true God of gods, a lot of folks make this leap in their minds and in their hearts that the unknown God is an unknowable God. That because you don't know him, that there's no hope, there's no chance, there's no means, there's no sense in speaking about knowing him. A lot of people make that leap that the unknown God is the unknowable God. And all hope is lost. Any searching is futile and people just shrug their shoulders and get on. Now stop and think about that. How tremendously sad that is. It makes Paul sick with sadness that these people don't know. Perhaps they think that they can't know the true, living God of God, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But here is something that Paul was certain of. Something that we can be certain of today too. That this true God can be known. That this true God has made himself known. Paul is certain that the unknown God of the Athenians is the well-known God in his life. And perhaps this morning you're watching along and you are someone to whom God, the true God, is unknown. 
The God in heaven is not your father. The God who walked this earth is, is not your brother, the son. The God who fills the church by his spirit is not your comforter. So let me take a moment just to offer up a few ways that God has made himself known and suggest that you can know this unknown God. Because God has given us lots of ways and means to know him. First and foremost, he has given us himself, the eternal son incarnate, Jesus Christ. We celebrate his coming into this world every Christmas. We celebrate his, his going from this world every Easter and Ascension. And this is what Jesus said of himself. In John's Gospel, chapter 18, he says, For this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. That's where he said that he was the truth, that no one could come to know God except through him. In John chapter 8, he says, if you know me, you will know the Father, you will know God, you know who he is. Because, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. No one else in history has ever made these sorts of claims. No one else's history has ever claimed to be the one through whom knowledge of the true God can be seen and experienced because he is the true God. And that might sound absolutely bonkers, that might sound absolutely mad, that through knowing a person, more mad still, a person who is no longer walking around talking to us, that you can know the true and living God, the unknown God made knowable. But no one else in history has ever backed up those claims in the way that Jesus has, with the way that he lived, his integrity, his beauty, his love, his power, with the way that he died, so innocently and yet so temporarily, with the way he rose to life again, not just conquering death in the lives of other people, but conquering death itself in his life. You see, we can know God if we know the Son, Jesus Christ. But like, how do we know the Son? Because as I said, he's not here, he's not walking with us. Well, the second place we can look is in the Bible, in the New Testament. Jesus promised his followers that once he left, He'd send his spirit to come on them, and that spirit, he, would lead them into all truth. And many of them wrote that truth, to share that truth. People like Paul, who wanted others to know the unknown God. People like Peter and John and James. They wrote this truth that they had encountered themselves, and this spirit led them towards, so that others would know the unknown God. You know, we can come to know Jesus through the Gospels. We can come to know Jesus through the letters that the church received from the apostles. We can come to know the unknown God through the testimony, through the witness of those who encountered him face to face. But we don't just stop with the New Testament in our scriptures, in our Bibles. We can also look to the ancient scriptures, to the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament. When Jesus was discussing these wonderful documents with 
other religious folks in his day, his day. He said that these were scriptures in which they were looking for life, but they wouldn't find life because these were really scriptures that were testifying, pointing to him. When we open up our Old Testament, yes, they're stories which reveal to us something of God, of how he came, how he dealt with, how he revealed himself in ways and means and situations to people of old. But ultimately, they're still, they're, these, are, these are stories, these are events which pointed to Jesus to help us to know the unknown God. Jesus is the one in whom we know God. He is the truth. He has revealed the truth. And we have in the whole scriptures testimony of that truth. But can we look elsewhere? Well, yes, we can. Because we know not everyone has the scriptures. Lots of people were waiting for a time to receive the scriptures. That isn't to say that we're without evidence. Because God has also given us creation around us. God has given us what he has made which bears witness to him. People often put it like this, that creation demands a creator. And that in creation we see the fingerprints of the one who has made everything and sustains everything. In those ancient scriptures, in the Old Testament, it was put this way, that the heavens, that is what is above us, the skies, the universe, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above declares, proclaims his handiwork. In the New Testament, Paul himself would go on to put it this way, that God's invisible attributes, things like his power, his nature, they have been clearly perceived by those who want to see it in all these things that he has made. We can know God simply by looking at his world. There's more still. We can know God through our conscience as well, can't we? God hasn't left us without hope in that sense either. Even these Athenians who had so many gods, so many altars, so many idols that they looked to and turned to, even them, they had this sense that there was something or someone more. Hence this final altar to the unknown God. Something inside them told them that with all their searching, with all their worshipping elsewhere, that there was still something missing. And in each and every one of us, in our most honest moments, we can reflect and we can say too, yes, there is something more, isn't there? So that unknown God, believe you me, is well and truly knowable in so many ways because we know that there's someone out there to be known who could and can know us. We know that there is something out there that must have made everything that we see. There are these holy scriptures which share with us stories and details about who this God is, especially in the person in the coming of the Son of Jesus Christ of Nazareth who lived and died and rose again. We can know this unknowable God. The problem is not that God is far away or that God is shrouded in darkness. 
God has drawn near to us and he is unmissable in his light. But we are turned in the opposite direction. We are turned facing a different way. We cast a shadow on all of the things that we see. And truly, if we want to know the unknowable God, then we need to turn and we need to face that God. We need to be brave. We need to be courageous. We need to admit that we have been searching in all the wrong places. We need to admit that we have been casting the shadow, that in him is light and life, and in us there is only darkness and death. God is not far off and unknowable. God is right there. And we are able to turn to him this morning even and know him through his son, Jesus Christ. But that's a word, a message for those of us this morning, perhaps don't believe. What does today's passage, which we'll read in full now, what does it say to us as those who do believe, who do know God, who do have this knowledge? We do know something that nobody else knows. Well, let's read the whole passage and let's see what we can glean. Verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was filled with idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worshipped God, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. And some of the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers also debated with him. And some said, what is this ignorant show-off trying to say? Others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus. And they said, maybe learn about this new teaching that you are presenting. Because what you sound, say sounds so strange to us and we don't want to know what these things mean. Now, you should know all of the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. So Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown god. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in shrines made by human hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives life to everyone and breath to all things. From one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth, has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we all live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, we are all of his offspring. Since we are God's offspring then, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or like silver or like stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands that all peoples everywhere repent. 
because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness. Righteousness by the one man that he has appointed. And he has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him. But others said, we'd love to hear more about this again from you. So Paul left their presence. However, some people joined him and believed, including Dionysus the Areopagite, a woman named Demarius, and others with them. So what do we learn? Those of us who, like Paul, know the unknown God and find ourselves constantly in places where we know something that those around us don't. Well, what do we learn? Well, we learn first and foremostly that Paul spoke up. Paul couldn't remain silent. In fact, he was desperate to speak about Jesus wherever, whenever, with whomever he met. Did you notice that? Verses 17 and 18, seeing that the city was filled with these idols, being so deeply distressed, what did Paul do? Well, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and those who worshipped God, as well as in the marketplace every day with whoever happened to be there. And he debated with the philosophers and the learned people, the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers. You see, in Paul's mind, nowhere and no one was off limits. It sort of makes sense of what he writes then later in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, doesn't he? That the message he proclaimed was a stumbling block to some, was foolishness to others, the saving power, the work of God in our lives. He knew because he had spoken to all those sorts of people. Sometimes we can have it in our mind that the message that we have is only for those who are truly desperate. That we'll only share the gospel with someone whose life is clearly broken. Or we might have it that someone needs to be of a certain intellect or a social economic class before we're willing to open up and speak the truth to them. Perhaps we think that the message that we have is only appropriate to be shared with a stranger or is only appropriate to be shared with a friend. But here Paul, when his heart is breaking, when his stomach is churning the most, seems to be most willing and free and desperate to speak the good news of hope in Jesus to anyone, everywhere. No one is off limits. It's not just Judaism 2.0 for the synagogues. It's not just this new message for the Gentiles who had no hope. It's not just this new way of seeing and understanding the world for great minds and great thinkers. No, it is for everyone. Paul spoke up and so should we. And notice as well, point number two, that he spoke up even when it made him look daft. When he's given his speech there to the Areopagus, and he begins to speak about the rising to life again of the dead, something that they utterly rejected, says that some began to ridicule him. It's a little bit buried in our translation, but earlier on when they called him uh, an ignorant show-off, others um, a, a, a babbler, um, the actual Greek is that they called him a seed picker. There was this idiom of being a seed picker, Someone who just went around like the birds and wherever they could find scraps would pick it up. 
And because he seems so willing to share this new hope of Jesus in different ways, in different places, people kind of associated him or accuse him of just being someone who was borrowing and stealing ideas from everywhere and that he was chancing it, basically. You see, Paul was willing to speak up in places and in ways that made him look daft. Or if we go back further, we'll know from his experience so far, not only places where he looks stupid, but places where he will end up getting run out of town for it, getting stoned and dragged out of town and left for dead. I wonder when we see the, the ignorance around us in people's lives that they don't know that knowable God, whether we're willing to seem stupid, whether we're willing to seem foolish, whether we're willing to seem bigoted and hateful even, to put ourselves in that position for the chance of sharing the hope that we have in Jesus. The third thing in terms of his speaking up that we notice is that he expresses that hope in language and ideas that make sense to the people that he is speaking to. See, this speech here in Areopagus bears absolutely no resemblance to other sermons that we've heard him preach so far in Acts. It is miles away from the scripture rooted, the Old Testament alluding speech that he gave inside an Antioch in the synagogue. It's very unlike the simple agricultural message that he shared with the people in Lystra there. This is philosophical, this is quoting their poets and their and their great thinkers. Paul is willing and keen to express the same hope that we need to turn and we need to trust in Jesus, that God is the one who has made all things, that God is the one who gives life and breath even to us. He wants to express that in language that is sensible and clear to the people that he is speaking to. Now, brothers and sisters, that is not a simple thing. That is hard work. And it's hard work because it takes two other things. It takes us really knowing the good news. And it takes us knowing the audience that we're speaking to really well. See, most of us learn the gospel in one way. The way that we come to faith. We're particularly lonely people, perhaps. And we realise that we can have this relationship, this unshakable relationship with God through Jesus and we embrace it. And so the only gospel we're ever really comfortable speaking about sharing is that. Or some of us came to recognise our deep need for forgiveness, our own sinfulness. And how Jesus was the one who came to take that guilt away and instead give us his perfectness, his righteousness. And so... We come to faith in that way, and that's the only gospel we're ever comfortable speaking or sharing. Or perhaps some of us came to recognise how God was the creator of all things, how he is supreme and how he is due our honour, our praise, our worship, our existence. And so the only gospel we're ever happy to share is that sort of gospel. See, it takes hard work to be someone like Paul, whose hope was in a rescuer to come and who recognised that Jesus was that rescuer and had it rescued through his life, his death and resurrection. It was hard work for him to see the, the fullness of that gospel. 
Remember recently we were in the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, and he wanted them to see that the gospel was so much more in so many different directions, and it's hard work. Some of us are sometimes satisfied with that tiny sliver of gospel that we have. Actually, one of the things that we're going to do over the next couple of weeks, the next couple of Sundays as we approach Easter, is try and unpack multiple things that the cross achieved. Because the gospel is wide, it's deep, it's multifaceted, it is so many things to us. And as believers, we need to know the full gospel, the whole gospel, if we're truly to be a people who have joy and peace and satisfaction, and if we're to share it with those around us. It's hard work because we need to know the good news really well, but it's also hard work because we need to know the people around us really well too. See, Paul didn't rock up in Athens. He didn't rock up in Lystra. Uh, Perhaps he did rock up in Poseidon Antioch with this idea of what he was going to share. No, he got to know the people. He got to know their language. He got to know what it was that they were looking for, what they were searching for, what they were hoping for. And he was able to join the dots between that, that longing that God has placed in all of our hearts, that conscience I spoke about earlier that says there must be something more, and how he might introduce Jesus as the one that they were longing for, as Jesus, the only one that could fill that gap in their lives. And for us, we need to do that. We need to not presume that we know everything about people or that people are thinking about life and the world the same the way that we are, that people aren't longing for the same things as we are. We need to know how Jesus is the answer to the things that they are searching for because he is the answer to all of our longings, to all of our hopes, to all of our dreams. But it's hard work. Paul was willing to put in that work. My question is whether we're willing to put in that work. So let me quickly finish up. Ask the question again. How does it make you feel when you know something that others don't? I think it can make you feel hopeful. Okay. Sometimes we can look at others and we can feel and say, all hope is lost. They don't know. But you know. And God has made himself known to people like you through people like us. So there is hope for those around you, those you care about who don't yet know. They can know. God can make himself known to those people. So you should be hopeful. I think as well it should make you eager and bold to speak up as Paul was here. So that those who have ears to hear, those who have eyes to see, those who are willing to turn around and face the truth that is nearby, it should make you eager and bold to speak up for those people. Lastly, it should make us dependent. So dependent on the one we are speaking of. Paul didn't do any of this in his own strength. Paul was only able to do this by the God who was with him and before him and around him. And that is exactly the same for us. That if we're to face ridicule, if we're to face rejection, if we're to face stonewalling and apathy and disinterest, if we're to face hostility, we can only speak up for Jesus and live for Jesus 
if we're empowered by Jesus and his Holy Spirit. I love at the end that we get the same mixed results as we've always done. Some people just thought it was nonsense. Some people perhaps maybe were willing to entertain it a little bit longer, but a final group of people were moved to come to faith, to put their trust, their hope, their lives in the hands of the one that Paul offered to them. You can do that today by trusting in Jesus. And we can help others by speaking up wherever, however we need to, even if it means ridicule and hurt for us. And to God be the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.